a lot of the times for folks when it is normalized, and I think that anxiety in itself has been normalized, there's a lot more room and more grace, which can actually help us address it head on. We can Mm -hmm. be more real with ourselves too, because you are worthy and you deserve to have a life Mm -hmm. that isn't taken away by our fears. You deserve to have freedom from that. And that's where I like to see the empowerment part of this. You can, you can have anxiety and you can still have a life that feels aligned with who you are and your values. Hello, and welcome to Unlock Your Vitality with Magalie on a Journey. I'm your host, Magalie Matthew. Here we cover all things vitality, that is living full of energy. From gut health to spirituality, nutrition to movement, we peel back the layers and unlock ways to heal and feel our best selves, one conscious habit at a time. Stick around, let's dive on in. I'm so excited you're here. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of the show. It is such an important episode. I think you're absolutely going to love it. You're going to love my guest, Dr. Holly. She is amazing. I'm so, so excited for us to get into this conversation all about anxiety. If uh, you've been listening to the show for a little while, you know that I've had my own journey with anxiety and I bring it up again in here and talk a little bit about some of the ways that I've experienced it. And she also shares ways that she's experienced, yeah, and what has led her to being a licensed clinical psychologist that she is today. She is living in Seattle and specializes in treating anxiety and OCD. And she's got a really deep commitment to mental wellness as she expertly guides individuals towards overcoming their challenges fostering vitality. When I saw the word vitality being a part of her bio, I was like, this was meant to be. Um, And a balanced life through evidence-based compassionate care. We talk about what are the different ways you might experience anxiety, what anxiety looks like when it needs to be treated and uh, when to seek for advice versus maybe when it's like acute stress that you're having in a moment in time for a certain situation. Uh, we talk about self-love and compassionate care and and give tools in ways in which you can help combat it and learn to love yourself through it. It's really, I mean, talk about a beautiful day to release this episode on Valentine's Day. On a day of love, I think that maybe one of the most beautiful things we can do for anxiety is really love ourselves and go into that self-love, self-growth journey. So I hope you absolutely love this episode as much as I was just in awe. And yeah, I honestly could have gone for another hour. If you get to the end of the episode, you'll see that we start talking a little bit about the patriarchy. And I feel like that's a whole other conversation that I need to have Dr. Holly back on for us to have a little deeper dive into that. But that was really a beautiful conversation. So I hope you enjoy it. And I wanted to also just give you a little update. There are so many beautiful things happening. If you are new to this podcast or if you don't already know, I organize a group coaching online program called Vitalize, and we are at week six of this cohort. It's been so beautiful. It's for any woman who is 
wanting to build a business, create something from idea into actually figuring out how to make it possible and sustainable and doing it holistically. So we also look at all the things, how to support your mind, body, and soul through this process. It's been so beautiful and I'm opening up the wait list for the next cohort. So if you want to add your email so that you can find out as soon as it launches. And then the other big, big announcement is that I'm finally launching events and retreats back. And so if you are wanting to have a beautiful weekend retreat, whether it's just for a day, it's going to be in Sebastopol, California near Napa and you can just come for the day or you can uh, stay overnight. I'm going to add a link in the show notes for all of the details and I'll talk a lot more about it in next week's intro, but I'm so excited if you're looking for just a way to reconnect with yourself and give yourself a whole lot of love. This is the moment for you. So, and if you listen to the show, you will get a special discount code. So make sure that you check the show notes for all of that. And let's get in the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the show. I'm so excited for today's guest, and we're going to talk about a topic that I know so many of you have experienced personally, and yeah, I just can't wait to get into it. So, Holly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation. I would love to start off if you could introduce yourself, have people get to know you a little bit better, and how you got into this work. Yes, absolutely. So I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. Specifically, my specialty is in anxiety disorders. And from a clinical aspect, I'll see folks who've struggled with things for a long time, who tried to treat it either on their own or use maybe more traditional talk therapy. And so my work specifically, I work with folks who have a bit more severe anxiety or cases where their kind of like own self-help wasn't cutting it. And I got really passionate about this work, you know, in my training, but even before I started the process of getting my PhD, mostly because I was just fascinated by how we can treat ourselves and how we can treat patients who have suffered for so long with anxiety and didn't realize that. And by not realizing it, I mean, being pretty high functioning still, you know, holding a job or still maintaining the relationships, but finding a lot of ways to kind of hide or distract or avoid a lot of difficulty, whether that's pain, depression, anxiety, or fear. And so kind of like leading me to where I am now as a, as a private practice clinician, I'm really passionate about having folks who really want to kind of dive deep and get into where their anxiety stems from and doing the work to treat it, which is we're no longer going to avoid it. How can we do a little bit of exposure therapy? How can we tolerate some of the uncomfortable effects so we can break that cycle? And I can talk a little bit more about the anxiety cycle and what anxiety looks like. But that's kind of a little bit about, I guess, what I, my work is, which is more of an anxiety-based specialist, clinical psychologist. Yeah, I love that. I'm so curious. Did you always know that this is something you wanted to get into? How did you just get into this work like from a younger age? What were some of the things that maybe pointed you into that direction? 
Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. Like reflecting on, on my life, I think that I knew that I wanted to be in a profession that helped people with trauma. And I was actually a physical therapy major when I started college or pre-physical therapy. And I recognized that when I was in that major, my hope was to help patients recover from the emotional aspects of a trauma. I was, I was hoping to work with folks from like very major injuries, like car accidents. Uh, and when I took general psychology, I thought, oh, this is what I want to do. But I think that when I was in school, especially undergrad, I was a bit fearful of what that process would look like in regards to getting into grad school, getting into a PhD program, which I think there was a little bit of, I would say, just being honest, I think there was a little bit of pressure for me to go all the way and get my PhD from my family if I was going to go into psychology. And when I realized how many steps it took, I was already in it too deep, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think I like <laughs> truly knew, you know, at 18 years old, when I switched my major, that the PhD program would be six years, and then there would be a postdoc and a fellowship. But I knew for a fact that I wanted to be a clinician and to work with people in regards to mental health. Um, and the PhD process was really great because I got to do like original research and work with a really great institution and got to work with really wonderful professors who were really passionate about the work that they did. And in particular, that was in working in community mental health and diversity in community mental health. So working with underserved populations in the Bay Area where I went to school um, in the San Francisco Bay Area, of course. And I think that throughout grad school, I didn't realize that a lot of things that I was learning about or treating, and, I, and this might be a common experience, um, is that, oh, these are, you know, depression, anxiety, things that I'm really passionate about treating are things I can very much relate to in my, in my mm-hmm. clients. This is actually easy for me to recognize the symptoms or dive into a little bit deeper, because these are a lot of things that I've been struggling with for a very long time without realizing how it's affected my life and recognizing how I've avoided some of those feelings or those fears by just kind of diving headfirst into school, into studying. And so I know it's kind of a long-winded answer to um, why I became or how I became a psychologist, but there is that kind of more personal, oh, I can... I can see how anxiety, you know, in particular can be hidden for quite Mm -hmm. a while. And I'm also grateful that now, you know, 10 years later, or I guess 14 years later, since I changed my major, there's a lot of more, I don't know, acceptance. Mm -hmm. There's less stigma. I love Generation Z's, like, just very, like, I don't know, straightforward approach to having anxiety or just sharing they have anxiety. I think that when I was in college and high school and younger, we didn't talk about that. I think that some of that's related to culture. I'm I'm an Asian American woman and that's just not something that we get to have a lot of discourse about in regards to, I guess, treatment or validation. And yet now I get to see folks who come to me and say, oh, I've had anxiety my whole life or I have anxiety and this is part of my personality. I have gotten to the place where I've been concerned that we might be over-identifying with anxiety. Mm -hmm. So the word anxiety or the concept of anxiety has evolved so much just since Mm -hmm. I started my grad school program to now being a licensed psychologist and to now treating different generations. It's been really fascinating to see how much, how differently we've 
approach the topic, the diagnosis, the treatment of it. But I am grateful that there's more acceptance of it too. And a little mm-hmm. bit more acceptance of our own therapists and recognizing that they too have had anxiety, have treated it, have gotten it treated themselves. And they can also be really effective as it. I do think my colleagues and I who've had our anxiety, who know what, who have personal experience with a panic attack, because I do believe if you haven't had a panic attack and you're treating it, it's really hard to have compassion or have like the full compassion, the full like understanding sure. of it if you haven't had one yourself. And so I am grateful that there's more acceptance, less stigma and overall more compassion for those of us who have anxiety. And I think that makes it a lot easier to talk about, get support, not even go to therapy, but talk about it with our friends and family too. Yeah, for sure. I love that. And I see also what you're speaking about in terms of the over identifying because the TikToks and the reels and where it's like, oh my God, I have so much anxiety and I had a panic attack for like five days straight. And, but I agree that it's amazing how much we're able to talk about it today. So let's, before we go any further, talk about what actually is anxiety. And you talked about diagnosis and treatment. What are ways that you would be able to diagnose um, that this is somebody who is having anxiety? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree that we can self-diagnose ourselves pretty often. We can watch a TikTok or a reel and be like, that's me. I guess I have anxiety. And so when a client comes into, you know, my office, we will sit down and have a pretty thorough intake in regards to the history of their symptoms. So when we talk about symptoms, I think about three components to the anxiety diagnosis, right? There is the cognitive, which is our thoughts. This is the one that I think most people identify with in regards to worries, Mm -hmm. excessive worries, fears. What is the kind of, what are your day-to-day worries, And how is that affecting you, right? So I will just get like a full list of the worries that you have about everything and anything. Then we'll look at the second component, which is the physical symptoms, right? And that's another thing that we all relate to too, right? Like the panic attack, heart racing. So most common ones right off the bat is usually muscle tension, chest tightness, racing heart, Sometimes that's, or getting cold or clammy or like tight fist, but a lot of it is muscle tension. Sleep issues is a big part of that as well, too. Of course, it's really hard to sleep when you're worrying about something and you're yeah. afraid of something. And then the third component, which I think is underrated, is our behaviors related to anxiety. And this is the things we do and the things we don't do in regards to our fears or worries and anxiety. So things mm-hmm. that we do, are we searching the internet to solve that problem or that fear Mm -hmm. or like relieve ourselves, right? Are we going to our friends, right? Going to the doctor, talking about it, journaling, right? Not everything that we do in regards to anxiety is productive. And there's things that can be really helpful and productive in the long run. Now, I like to focus the most on the things we don't do. And that is, what are we opting out of? What are we avoiding in regards to our anxiety? So just to choose an example, because this is something I struggled with as a student, fear of flying. Um, I had a very bad, mm. uh, I, had, I don't know how common it is to have a very turbulent flight. When I started talking to more people about it, like, oh yeah, I've experienced like a flight that I thought was going to go down. It was so turbulent, but it was kind of fun. For me on that flight, and I'll never forget it, it was on my birthday, flying back to San Francisco, 
the turbulence was so bad. That was it. I thought we were all going to die. I had a very, very major panic attack. And so naturally with anxiety, we're going to want to do everything we can to avoid that experience. And so flying was a good example of let's not take that trip or maybe I can delay the next time I go back to Ohio, you know, where my family was living or maybe I don't have to go to that wedding. So are we avoiding things that could make our life better or meaningful? Are we not public speaking? Are we not speaking up in our, at school or in our jobs or to with our partners even? I'll spend quite a bit of time looking at, is there things that we're not, that the things, are there things that we're opting out of? And with those three components, I'll then look at the distress level. So sometimes I'll have folks rate from zero to, I don't know, 100. How anxiety provoking is their day-to-day, like, I guess, worries, their day-to-day anxiety or episodes, right? It really just depends on how we look at our anxiety. Is it happening generally? And that's more generalized anxiety about things, everything and anything that comes up. Or do we have these little episodes, right? My partner said something to me. It's when I go on an airplane. But overall, it all comes down to how distressing is it from zero to 100? If we're like, I don't know, 50 and higher, that's a little bit more data for this being more, I guess, time consuming, more disruptive. And then I'll look at how is it affecting your functioning and your roles, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If you're a new mother like myself, is it impacting your ability to parent, right? That's where we get concerned because you deserve to, you deserve to enjoy the beginning stages of of parenthood and motherhood and not have anxiety really take that away from you. Um, So is it affecting now your roles, maybe as a partner, as a student, as an employee, as a daughter, as a father, whatever it might be. And when we kind of look at all that more holistically, then yes, we can look at the DSM-5 and like see if we meet the criteria and you have like five of the nine symptoms, whatever it might be. But I really try to recognize that every person can't fit into a box so much. So what is kind of baseline for you? I'll look at time too. How long has this been happening for? Is this an isolated event? Did you just have a new baby? Did you have a traumatic experience? And see what's also very normal. And a lot of the times for folks when it is normalized, and I think that anxiety in itself has been normalized, there's a lot more room and more grace, which can actually help us address it head on. We can mm-hmm. be more real with ourselves too. So that's really just like a tidbit of what I do in session in regards to diagnosing. Then we'll look at, is this generalized anxiety, which is the most common type of anxiety disorders? Is this a specific phobia, you know, like fear of flying, for example? Is it a thing that has been caused by a life event, such as, I guess, trauma or parenthood or new adjustment, like moving or starting a new school or a breakup even, starting a new relationship, right? I talk a lot about relationship anxiety too in my work too. And at the end of all of it, I look at this biopsychosocial model. You're a lot of therapists talk about that is biologically what's happening physically, our hormones, our sleep, physical illness, chronic pain, chronic illness, psychologically what's happening. Are there patterns that we can like kind of dive into and understand that's been kind of passed down to us by our family of origin and then socially what's happening there. And then what support can we get to? So yeah, that's a little bit of the the process in regards to like diagnosing, because I know that a diagnosis is very important for folks in regards to treatment. And what I'm seeing more is 
in regards to being taken seriously by their family or even their medical providers or a partner. Something I have found for myself and also for a lot of my clients is anxiety can be really lonely when other people don't know what it feels like. Mm-hmm. And sometimes being able to like have the diagnosis and have that label can be really liberating and empowering for folks too. Okay. It wasn't just in my head. I yeah. knew that things were a lot harder for me than from others or from my peers. Thank you for helping me realize, okay, now there's something I can do about this. And mm-hmm. so that's what I hope when I do get that diagnosis and we go through the the assessment and the feedback and then the recommendations. Yeah, I love that. I'm curious because you spoke about the fact that many might live with some of the symptoms and for a really long time until coming to you or seeking professional help or even talking to somebody about it. How do we know whether it's, let's say, as you give the example of your moving and so that might be stress inducing because there's a lot of things to think about. It could feel overwhelming. How do you differentiate something like that? That might not be long lasting, right? Just like, okay, I need to get through this. And like, yes, I'm a new mom and yes, I have work and yes, I have all these things and I need to move houses versus really it being a moment of like, this is anxiety inducing and it's not just about the move. It's about like, this comes up in different moments in my life or actually it's always there and I'm not really noticing it. Like, how do you know the difference between time periods, which can be overwhelming because we live in a world where there are going to be things and it's not necessarily that every moment of stress or overwhelm is anxiety. So how do we know when it's one and when it's the other? Yeah. I mean, so that's, that can be tough, right? This is where self-awareness comes into. And then of course, in therapy, we'll just gather like a history of events, stressful events and how you coped with it. My cognitive behavioral therapy training. So CBT leads me to this, to the answer of thought patterns, core beliefs. So Essentially, we would want to understand, is there a core belief that we have about ourselves, Mm. the world, about other people that has been really consistent from the beginning of our lives? Uh, If I look back into my childhood, for example, I really have seen the world as dangerous for for a long time. And and I found out as I got older that there's a lot of people who don't see the world as as dangerous. Mm. They can kind of like navigate through new experiences in the world and not have that fear. Another way too is how we see ourselves. So another core belief about ourselves, am I competent or am I worthless? And, you know, that's more kind of related to depression, but again, depression, anxiety do overlap in a lot of ways, but we'll Mm -hmm. look at core beliefs and see if that is something that stayed consistent. If it's something that comes up in the symptoms, especially like the physical symptoms, and it only happens in those high stressful events which again, we can't avoid, there's going to be stressful events all the time, but if it's really kind of more isolated, it's happening there. And then when that event has kind of subsided, the symptoms also subside, then that's more situational based and that's a very normal thing. But if that is really kind of like bleeding into other areas of your life. And again, a lot of us who live with like more higher functioning anxiety, we cope with it pretty well already. We would just want to look at what's kind of the underlying belief system that I have about myself or about the world, about other people. And usually with anxiety, the theme is danger, which again, we need that to survive. We need to be able to recognize 
danger. And that's actually what keeps us like functioning. And is that fear of danger realistic? Is it rigid? Is it preventing us from being present and enjoying this new life change, right? This, mm. this move or this new addition to our, to our family as well too. So in therapy, we'll, we'll, we dive into that quite a bit in regards to fears and belief systems. And then the second part of, of that is what are our core fears? For some of us, it could be really easy to kind of find what our core fear is. And the way to get to that is asking, what are you afraid of right now? It could be in a specific event, but I don't know. I'll, I'll just use an example, maybe relationship anxiety. You're starting a new relationship and you find yourself overthinking everything. And so that's the worry part. You find yourself like with heart palpitations when you're with that person or, and then you then ask for a lot of reassurance, right? So those are the three components of the anxiety cycle. Again, it's a cycle. So it keeps repeating. We would then look at what is the fear here? Maybe on that surface level, it's, oh, I'm, I'm scared that it's just not going to work out. I'm scared that they might leave me. Sounds deep, but we could get even deeper there. What's underneath that? What would happen if, if it doesn't work? Oh, then I might not get to have, a, I don't know, a, a family. I might not be able to become a parent, my, my biggest dream. Okay, what if you don't get to become a parent? And then we get even deeper. Then there was no point of being alive. Right? Or there was no point of me working so hard. My, my goal is to become a mother and become a parent. And I need to get there from this relationship working out. And so I'm using like a kind of, I don't know, specific example, but we'll dive deeper into this. Can I recognize what the core fear is? Can we even, I mean, this is like kind of deeper down the lines. Can we expose ourselves to that possibility? Can we make peace with that? Can we just name it so we can make peace with that just being a fear yeah. and recognizing how that's affecting your relationship today. That fear of not being, being, becoming a mother. I don't know why I chose that example. It just came up, but can we recognize maybe it's a fear of being alone? Could we cope with that core fear happening? And when I did this in therapy, when I had pretty major flight anxiety and I had 17 interviews coming up for my residency, <laughs> my core fear was dying. And I was like, I don't think there's, I don't think I can cope with that doctor. If I die, then I don't get to ach achieve my dreams. Mm -hmm. And she said, it's, that's not your core fear. I was like, yeah, it is. <laughs> there's nothing, there's nothing after that. What we kind of, I don't know, the realization was that my core fear was suffering. My fear was the process of dying of, of the plane going down into, into flames the fear was how I'm going to feel when it's happening, that I'm not going to have peace at the end of my mm -hmm. life. And so it got very deep and existential, which I really love. And so again, going back to your question, right? What's high functioning anxiety? What's normal? And then what is, oh, I really need to get treatment for it. It's, has this been a very consistent thing that's kind of manifested in different ways and we've just been avoiding it? Do I need to be real with myself and start to get kind of deeper what the core fear is with my core beliefs specifically. Yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I actually could relate a lot to the relationship anxiety example, because prior to deciding that we wanted to get married and all these things, I had big questions and mm. mine were hundred percent rooted on abandonment wound mm. issues and feeling like, yeah, I, when I was a little girl, I had a nanny growing up, very privileged to have had a lot of help. And she passed away when I was around mm -hmm. four. 
And it was somebody who was like my second mom who was with me all the time and who all of a sudden wasn't. And it was a really, really traumatic experience that I didn't realize at the time, obviously. So I actually grew up in Thailand. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so she would speak to me in Thai and I was fluent in Thai. Like I learned French and Thai at the same time growing up. That is so cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then as like a little four-year-old, I told my mom, I was like, I'm never speaking Thai again. Mm. And it was like, you know, such, obviously I don't remember this, but like thinking now about what a four-year-old is, that Mm. it was such a strong moment of like, I'm not doing this anymore because it's too painful. Mm -hmm. And so there was so many moments in my life that I was, I would say coping with that abandonment wound issues and like, just being like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. And coping in all the ways that as a 20 year old you cope. And then once, yeah, wanting to like make this really big life decision of, is this the partner for the rest of my life and fearing that he was going to go away. So it was so helpful to get to the bottom of it. And something that I'm really excited to talk about was with you is like, because it's a practice that I did, but understanding how much self-compassion can be healing. Mm -hmm. And the root of, for me, my healing was giving me the love that I needed and knowing that even if I was alone, I have everything within me to Mm -hmm. be able to cope and be okay. And so I'm curious to hear some of the ways that you can help. Maybe somebody listening is like, oh, I've been getting help and still not feeling like things are working or uh, I'm not in a place where I feel like I can go and reach out to somebody, what are some of the things that people might be able to do? Mm -hmm. First of all, thank you for for sharing that. And it's really beautiful to hear that you had that journey of of realization and understanding Mm -hmm. like that that abandonment. I'm sorry you had to go through that. That's such an off thing. And really beautiful that you got to the point where you could realize it and have self-awareness and then also make peace with it. The self-compassion component is something I'm super, super passionate about and being able to see it firsthand in my clients and then also in myself. I mean, I just truly wish that's something that I think my generation and obviously my parents' generation had taught from early Mm -hmm. on. Um, There's definitely a, I don't know, like hustle culture, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. When you're upset brush it off for men, especially. And I could, we could talk about that like another day, but especially for women, this idea that things are like are internal. If things aren't, if you're not doing well, that's on you. There's a lot of pressure Mm -hmm. to, I guess, heal ourselves. And in a way, beautiful, because a lot of us are motivated to like to heal ourselves and figure out what it is. And so when I say like we're talking in therapy about like digging deeper and finding out what that core fears, that won't be effective in the long run if we also don't have self-compassion. So it's really important. I always watch out for blame, shame, and guilt, and they're all serve different purposes. And how do we then look at ourselves, right? Look at our four-year-old self who went through this like really traumatic experience with love, with compassion. And I've noticed as my career has gone on that most, of course, like most of my training was not in self-compassion focused therapy, right? We really got scientific and, you know, whatever CBT and psychodynamic. And I think as a field of psychology, especially in our PhD programs, there's like a lot of like 
trying to prove ourselves to other medical professions mm-hmm. that were a serious field and were scientific too. And when the mention of like, oh, let's be kind to ourselves and grace and let's, how does it feel in our body? There's a lot of resistance from professionals and clinicians, especially in training programs, because of that, I guess, like already stigma of our field and not being taken serious by STEM and other sciences. And yet it's so beautiful because people of my generation, especially women, are doing research to actually prove that self-compassion-focused therapy and self-compassion in general is effective in treating Mm -hmm. depression and anxiety. Just like how there's this huge boom in mindfulness meditation, breath work. We didn't even have the research on it, you know, as deeply as we do 10 years ago, since Kristen Neff even coined the term or got into and really like got it more mainstream. And thanks to like people like her and Brene Brown who talk about shame and vulnerability. And then now we actually have research to back it up. And I guess as a clinician and as someone with their PhD, I always want to look at the science behind it. Self-compassion works. It's really effective Mm -hmm. for women in particular and how we employ it. So to answer the question in regards to how can we do that for ourselves and how can we find more self-compassion? For some people, it's the kind of like quick and easy technique is imagining yourself as a friend. And that's just like the very like kind of basic, how would I talk to myself if I was a friend right now? Can I treat myself like a friend, a best friend even? For others, that's actually still a hard thing to do, maybe because they have experiences where friends have not been kind to them and they're, they have been isolated. Again, anxiety can be also be very isolating. And so there's like this wall built up around us to guard us and protect us too. So when that happens, I think that's where some of the mindfulness approaches come in. Can I ground myself? Can I feel safe in my environment? Can I feel safe in my own skin? And The next part is, can I recognize that what I'm experiencing is not an isolated experience, right? With now over 8 billion people in this world, there is someone who's going through exactly what you're going through right now. Like just based on probability alone, someone is feeling what you're feeling right now. Mm -hmm. And this is a kind of shared humanity or common humanity approach to self-compassion, which is, can I recognize that I'm not alone in this? that there is shared suffering. And with shared suffering, there's also shared healing and community. And so then to take that more practically, who are the people that I feel safe with? Are these friends? Is it an online community? Is it through a mental health professional I found on Instagram or a podcast like this, where I can find kind of a safe space and recognize that I'm not alone in this suffering? Mm-hmm. And there's people there who, who, who support me in there, even if I don't talk to them on a daily basis. So self-compassion has a lot of components to it as well. And I always refer to Dr. Neff's uh, website. So Kristen Neff, I think it's selfcompassion.org. And I will correct myself if that's wrong and later and I'll send it to you. Um, Mm -hmm. And that has a lot of great meditations online and it has a lot of exercises too. And I think now that self-compassion in and of itself is becoming more mainstream, it's, it's really beautiful to see people sharing their own techniques on how they get there, how they feel compassion for themselves which then helps us feel compassion for others and then allows other people to be compassionate to us in return. Yeah, I love that. What you said sparked a question for me in, on the one hand, I know that it's amazing that we are able to have more conversations around it and speak about it. And then on the other hand, I wonder, 
thinking just of like my grandparents' generation, are we just living in a life that we're creating more places for us to have anxiety? And I guess I'm talking more about like environmental and societal factors of just the way that we are evolving. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on just where we're going. And like, I think about a lot of times when if I'm having anxiety and and in my old work, when I felt really burnt out, it was just this like overstimulation, never having a break and adapting a more slow living way of life has personally allowed me to just feel better and like practice more gratitude and just, and I also know that, you know, I'm not somebody that needs three jobs to make rent and all these things. So yeah, I guess, I don't know if my question is very clear, (laughs) but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. It's so interesting. The, The discourse and the conversations about our generation versus past generations, like obviously from a sociological perspective, it actually makes sense why there's more anxiety now than, than ever before. And generations before us just were not getting help for it, or they were just kind of pushing it back and it just wasn't labeled. Um, there is more self-awareness in, in these generations. We also have a plethora of information and overstimulation and overwhelm with media and the way that technology has been integrated into our lives, which was meant to make our lives easier but there are more things, there are more fears and there's more social consciousness now because a lot of our, I guess, presence is on, for a lot of people is online. There's, depending on what age you're at, how important is that to you? And so not only is there a generational difference between the things that we are now worried about and fearful about, but it really depends on where you are at in your life as well. I mean, this is maybe my own (laughs) defensiveness of our generation, I think of millennials and, and younger compared to my parents or my grandparents, mostly because there's a, oh, well, in my day and age, we didn't have therapists, you know, we just, <laughs> we were fine, you know? And then of course, you know, getting into like, well, you're complaining now, like I was in the war, you're complaining about having birth trauma and almost dying from giving birth. Well, I was in World War Two. Think about that, how hard that was, right? Like, and it's just like a funny joke I have with like my <laughs> my my family or my colleagues about like our, you know, a grandparent saying mm-hmm. that, oh, it's so hard for you to like wait for the school bus. Well, I had to trek a whole mile uphill in the mm-hmm. snow <clears throat> to get to school. So I think older generations will always kind of, I don't want to say look down, but I do think that there is like kind of natural, like look how much easier you have it now. And yet you're still complaining and you're scared Mm -hmm. of going on an airplane when like how amazing it is that you can even fly to begin with. Right. And so to that, I would say there is a lack of self-compassion for themselves. I'm just saying just isolating, you know, maybe people who look down on, on younger people who have anxiety, you have suffered, you have gone through it and now you're okay, right? Like quotes, you're, you're okay. And so when you see other people suffering through something you think is not as bad as you and they're addressing it, I think it's important to give them credit for addressing it. Um, whereas we were used to just, you know, generations before us used to just like pushing away and not talking about us. Is there a limit to like how self-aware and, and is there a limit to self-pity? Like obviously there's a difference between self-pity and self-compassion, victimizing ourselves, because that's not productive, right? And I think in therapy and being real with ourselves, 
is a way for us to use our self-awareness productively. The overall goal of, of therapy and just in our lives in general, and this is getting kind of existential, is to live a rich and meaningful life, right? So that's just pulling from acceptance and commitment therapy. We all deserve to live a rich and meaningful life. That's going to look differently for everyone. But if the things that we're anxious about are getting in the way of that, how can we address that? How can we be real about that? And we don't have to suffer. I think generations maybe before me, especially as, as, as parents, as mothers, it was the norm for mothers to suffer as mm. in regards to putting everyone's needs before them, maybe their husband's needs, their kids' needs. And the being the martyr was was actually something that we looked up to, I mm. think. Uh, well, I suffered, you will too, mothers suffer. That's how society works. And I'm going to try, I know we're running out of time, so I'm going to try not to get too into that. No, I would love for you to, I mean, that like the martyr victim archetype is like my life's work of, (laughs) in terms of just letting that go. And I think personally as not yet a mother, it is a fear, right? Of like, oh, being a mother is hard. It makes life more difficult. You can't have it all. Like these are things that were just fed. Absolutely. And I wish I even thought about that. Um, so before I became a parent as well, I think I, I kind of got thrust into it and it happened. I'm like, oh, both things can be true. This can be incredibly hard and I don't have to suffer more than I already mm. am. That was an interesting shift, I think, for me and, and for new moms that, yes, I am suffering, but I don't have to. This is not my duty to mm-hmm. suffer. I can find glimmers. I can find joy in this experience. And it's hard. Like, let's be real about it. It, it is ex- yeah. it's really hard. But when there's shame or when there's, I don't know, when the suffering is, I'm supposed to suffer. And that means you should suffer too. That's when we see really toxic cycles and invalidation of new parents. Usually passed down either from mother to daughter, mother-in-law to daughter. That's probably the most common thing I see. And that's something mm. I've experienced, which is I suffered now you have to suffer too. Or I suffered and I had a really, really hard postpartum. I had depression and you'll get through it too. You'll be just fine. And it's, I like to, you know, as a therapist, I like to think, but were you, were, are you okay? Were you fine if you now think that <laughs> yeah. everyone after you should suffer too? And so there's ways to, I don't want to say fight against it because it, it, it shouldn't be fighting and it shouldn't be on us now. Break that. But there are ways for us to challenge those expectations that maybe past generations have put on us as women, especially there has been like quite a revolution for both men and women in recognizing our roles as new parents, even as spouses. Statistics alone, men are spending so much more time with their kids than their own fathers. Now millennial men are doing a lot more work, but when we look at the actual data and we look at the surveys from, I guess in the the most recent survey from motherly women are still doing more of the work, even when they're working mothers. And every mother is working, regardless if you stay home at, with your kids or you're in a different job. But regardless, we're still not there to the point where societally we accept that women are kind of the center of our society in regards to their role, child rearing, raising children. And I think that if we did realize how important our roles are as mothers or as women or as people who are going to become mothers, how important their mental health is. It would be really scary 
for men in power because that means they have to give up a lot of their own freedom. Oh, man, I, I'm so passionate <laughs> about this and I can go on because it's just something that's affected me. <laughs> Yeah, I love this. We'll definitely have to have you back and do a part two because I think there's so many new questions. (laughs) I wasn't expecting it (laughs) for me to get all riled up about it and emotional about it. But but overall, Mm -hmm. to kind of conclude in regards to like what I care a lot about in anxiety is there's hope. We don't have to over identify with being anxious people. Um, I think that that can be a limit when we say oh, I'm anxious. I'm anxious about everything. And I think that can prevent us from living a full life, Mm. mostly because we might be avoiding things. And I love helping people recognize the balance between self-compassion and what's productive self-compassion in regards to you can be giving yourself love and grace and compassion by doing the thing that scares you, by taking that job or taking the move. And you can also be very compassionate by allowing yourself to have productive rest and staying in bed and not waking up at 6 a.m. to like work out and have that like productive day that we see on Instagram or YouTube. And so there's balance. So I like to think of like what feels productive for you because you are worthy and you deserve to have a life mm-hmm. that isn't taken away by our fears. You deserve to have freedom from that. And that's where I like to see the empowerment part of this. You can, you can have anxiety and you can still have a life that feels aligned with who you are and your values. Mm-hmm. I love that. So beautiful. Thank you so much, Holly. It's been such a pleasure to have you on and um, share this conversation with you. And I know that our listeners are going to be really appreciative of all the information that you shared. So thank you so much. Absolutely. It was so nice to meet you. And it was so nice to talk with you. Yes, you too. Just before you go, where can people find you? How can they reach out um, if they're interested? Absolutely. So I'm on Instagram, holly.phd. Um, I have a website, hollyphd.com. Um, feel free to DM me, of course, interact with my page. I love that. I'm trying to grow and um, it'd be nice to, to meet with more folks too. So thank you. Yeah. And you have beautiful content on there. That's so helpful and super educational. I'm just going to ask you one of the questions that we ask at the end of every podcast. What unlocks your vitality these days? What is giving you energy? It is when I feel safe in my own body, you know, my own skin, when I feel that I'm allowed to show up and be however I am. And I can show up whoever that person is and still love myself and still accept myself for it, regardless if other people can do that or not. So it's, it comes down to self-acceptance and self-love. And I know that when I have that self-love, I have energy. I guess I start behaving in ways that allow me to take care of myself, which allows me to take care of others, of my children. Um, So it's that it's, it's loving myself. It's cheesy, but that's really what it is. It's so good. I love it. I'm all about it. (laughs) Thank you so much. And thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you loved this episode as much as I did. If you are enjoying the show, please feel free to rate and review, share it with a friend. This is truly how we are able to grow. So whether you are listening on Kajabi directly, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, or on Google, any way that you can just share it with a friend and 
even through social media, letting us know what you loved about it, what you got out of the episode. And if you haven't yet, you can subscribe or rate and review depending on all the places that you get your podcasts. But I just wanted to say a big, big thank you if this is the first episode you've ever listened to or if you've been here for a while or if you've been here since the very beginning. Unlocking my vitality has been a beautiful journey into learning actually and this podcast has really helped me learn through different people, through your feedback, through yeah, just seeing and hearing beautiful women and the work that they're doing and sharing it with the world. So thank you so much for being here and I'll see you next week. Bye.